Now we return to our study of Ephesians together, and we are in that section, that famous section of Ephesians chapter 6, the full armor of God as it is termed, the whole armor of God given to us, Christ's armor as it were, battle proven, earned and and, uh, provided for by Jesus himself to his people. And you have to make no mistake about this, you are in a war. It's a spiritual war, but it's no less real than a physical one. Uh, there's a battle within, you know, and you know that battle between the old self and the new self in Christ. Uh, we still feel that vestige, that pull back towards sin. There's also the battle uh, with the spirit of the world, uh, a system that is fundamentally opposed to the things of God that we feel living in the world. But also there's the battle with the devil himself who started it all. Um, and that's who Paul refers to here um, in the first person as we deal with the fiery darts of the devil that are thrown at us. This is a spiritual battle that we are part of, but we are well equipped for that battle because of Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Jesus is our righteous advocate who arms us, who gives us the armament that we need, the equipment we need to be able to withstand the attacks of the devil. Today we come to the breastplate of of righteousness, the second piece of the armor. We find it in verse 14 of the passage, but I will read verse 10 to verse 20 of Ephesians 6 so that we are prepared uh, to understand in context what the breastplate of righteousness is. So here now as I read God's holy word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Please bow together with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are thankful, very thankful, for the armor that you have provided through the work of Christ Jesus. We are in need of understanding so as to access this full armor that you have granted. I pray for your Spirit's help to understand and to apply your holy word. I pray for the encouragement and strengthening of your people here gathered under your holy word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Almost exactly a year ago, we bought a new car. We've been driving minivans for the last 20 years, and it was time to move out of one level of mom car into a new level of mom car, and that's what we did. It's not a high level. I mean, from a, uh, a minivan to a Honda Pilot, it's only slight, but we know the difference and feel cooler when we're driving it. Now, this is the first vehicle I've ever bought like this, by text. 
and I'm not kidding, it was a year ago, so we were only a month into the lockdowns, and we started getting all these advertisements, as you do, the dealerships really throwing all sorts of incentives because they were not moving any inventory, and they're a couple months into 2020, they should have been way further along, and then the Rona hit. And when it hit, it meant that they had, could not have people come in personally, at least they had to really limit it. So I texted back to one of the advertisements, which I never do, and I said, I looked up, I saw one of the cars they had on their lot, I looked up the specs, and I said, I'd like to know more about that one. Of course, right away, the texts are coming, and we're going back and forth, but it was all text, no phone call, not one phone call at this point. And so um, I told them that I had a minivan I wanted to trade in. Now, I knew the minivan had a lot of issues. It's a good van, but it got beat down after five or six years of four kids and in the thick of the boys' soccer games and moving, tra- uh, you know, bringing them back. It just had lots of little things wrong that, you know, add up a lot when they give you your trade-in value. So I just told him, it's got all these problems. I listed them out. I said, I think it's, I'd like to get this much for it. And I way overshot because they never give you. You always get robbed on trade-ins. But I didn't know else, how else to move it during the, the pandemic going on and all that. And so here we are in April. And so I told him that. And then I told him that the price I saw in, online, I figured it was going to be less than that, right? And so I threw a number out there too, kind of calculated in my mind. And I get a text back. My manager says, we can do it. I'm like, this is incredible. I haven't even seen the vehicle yet. So on, uh, on text, I set up an appointment. This is, this is all straight true. I'm not, I'm not pastor embellishing. This is all true. And so I, which is lying, which you shouldn't do. But in any ways, I, I write this text down and then, uh, and I say the next day I'm going to make an appointment. I'm going to go down to, to the dealership to, to get the car. So I drive the van. I'm thinking as I'm driving the van, I'm just thinking the different things with it. When they actually see this, they're not going to give me what I'm asking for. Well, I pull it in and I saw the car I was going to buy. They had it pulled up. I pulled in alongside of it. And this is super tight at this time. I mean, you're almost wearing hazmat suits that first month after, if you remember. And so I walk in and everybody's just, you know, staying away. And I got my the text, I, I, that van or that, do you want to see it? Do you want to get drive? I said, no, I see it. It's, it's fine. And I sat down well across from the salesperson, and I'm talking out the details. We're looking out the window. There's the van. There's the car. They cut the deal. I signed the papers. The first time I even got into it is when I drove off with it. That's the first time I'd ever. And I knew I wasn't going to really drive it much. It would be the one Sherry would drive more. So who, I'm not going to get too in love with this Honda Pilot. So I bring it home. A couple months go by before we could really test this thing out because no one's going anywhere. And so finally, we take a few little trips, see Sherry's parents a couple hours away, and we're driving this thing the first time or the first time I'm driving it for any amount of time. And as I'm driving along, I start to go into the other lane, and the thing starts beeping at me, and the wheel shakes. So I'm like, whoa, this is, this is different. And sure enough, there's a car coming. Then I'm in cruise control. I'm not saying I was getting sleepy, but maybe I was not paying as good of attention as I could. And I get a certain distance be, behind the truck ahead of me, and it slows down on me. Whoa, this is something new. And then before you know it, like your phone's sitting there, which you never should be on your phone texting or anything like that. But this thing, you could just talk into the dashboard, and it's got a little microphone above you, and you can talk to people on the phone through this microphone that the car has. I know a lot of you people know this stuff, but this is not the level we've had before. And so I was just shocked at all the benefits that came to me from this new car we had. And then really where it, it, it went to a new level was when it got cold outside and you get in and it immediately sensed it was cold and it would heat up your seat. Immediately you could feel, whoa, this is warm. I'm just going to come out and sit out here. This is just comfortable. And then as you're driving along, uh, you're, 
you're enjoying all these benefits to the vehicle, and you're realizing it's, it's, this is a very smart car. I mean, you could tell it to do stuff. You can ask it to show you information about the car. I mean, I was just blown away by how many benefits were ours. I had the car for basic reasons, and we're very happy with it. I didn't need any of that, really, but it just is an amazing, uh, it's an amazing uh, invention that man has come up with to give you all this. And then to top it off, there's a button on my key fob, which you don't have to stick a key in anymore. You just have to have it in your pocket and press a button. I press this button for 10 seconds and it starts the car up. So if I'm sitting inside and it's cold outside, I don't have to go and get the snow off. Because let's say our garage is a little filled with stuff and so we can't really fit it in there. And there it's sitting out there and I can hear it start up and it's going to be warm and ready. What benefits come to us that you probably didn't even know? I didn't know about any of these for a couple months. And they just overwhelmed me when I realized how great this is. I think that for most believers, we are aware of our salvation. We know and we say the words we are in Christ. Especially in our church, we really accent what it means to be in Christ. We think this is a central theme of the scriptures. But maybe we fail to recognize all the benefits that come to us being in Christ. And probably the most important benefit, aside for our eternal life in Christ, is the fact that we are equipped to stand against that which will come against you. You have, by God's armor given to you, the ability to fend off the devil. And the devil is powerful. The devil is strong and capable. And the vestige of sin in you still rears its head. And the world, beholden to the devil. But even little old you and me, us, the church, in Christ, we have the benefits of his protection, the benefits of his armament that we find here. So you don't need to feel like you're under-equipped or not able to deal with what will come. You have been given these great benefits, and hopefully it will become something you discover as you grow in Christ, all that he has given to you in Jesus. His finished work didn't just get you heaven. It gave you a new identity. You're a new creature. You're loved by God. You are his beloved son or daughter. And so he protects you. He cares for you. He sees you as he sees his own son and loves you like that. And with that kind of a stance, uh, when we come to a passage like this about putting on the whole armor, recognize it's the armor he's, been, he's given you. This is a matter of recognizing what we have, the benefits that are ours. And let them surprise you. Let them shock you. You should be delighted when you discover how much is at your disposal because of Christ. This is the armor that God has supplied. And so many benefits await us as we unlock them, as we see what they are. And the word of God reveals what is ours in Christ. And this armor that we're studying, this is a prime example of it. In verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now we've come to the second piece of armor. We already looked at the belt of truth. That's that central piece of your equipment that holds everything else together. It's not primarily an offensive part of the weaponry, but it's rather something that holds together the rest of the essential parts. Now we come to the breastplate. Think of a Roman soldier. It covers from the waist, from the belt, all the way up to the neck. And the, the Roman soldier had a breastplate that had two sides to it. It went on the back as well. So it protected your vital organs from both sides. It's a vital defensive piece. You can't 
amount any offense if you don't have that basic defense, especially in antiquity in the kinds of warfare that were there. With arrows coming at you, the breastplate could fend off most, most arrowheads. The same with knives and certain swords. The breastplate would protect you. It was a vital defense. Your vital organs protected by the breastplate. It is essential. It's basic level. There's an order to the way Paul writes these things. The belt holds it all together. Truth. You got to know what is true. And now the breastplate of right. The first thing we discover from the word of truth is the righteousness required of God. The breastplate of righteousness given to us by God starts to even explain itself in what it's described as. God gives us this breastplate as our base defense against the attacks of the devil. That's why it's called the breastplate of righteousness. It refers to our, first of all, our status as righteous in Christ, but it also refers to something secondarily, our righteous actions that flow from who we are in Christ. It's a beautiful alloy, if you will, that makes a strong metal. Our positional righteousness in Jesus and the practical righteousness that flows from it. Those things together. A person who understands what is theirs in Christ, that's the righteousness we wear, then starts to act in, accord, in accordance with it. This repels the devil like nothing else. It's a powerful, powerful resistance to the devil. Having Christ's righteousness, it motivates us in the pursuit of obedience, and that is a powerful stance indeed against the devil. Now, since this armor has been given, you heard in the passage, so that we can withstand or stand against, it's not primarily we run in and charge offensively. It's not to say there's no offense involved when the devil comes at you because you've got a sword, but it has to do with the reality that the devil's going to come at you, and God has equipped us to be able to stand against whatever comes against us. So stand and withstand are terms. It helps to know what are the tactics that the evil one will throw at us as we try to understand verse 14 in the breastplate of righteousness. Look at verse 11 just for a moment. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. This reveals that the devil has tactics. He has practices against Christians, against the church. Later in verse 16 of our passage, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the devil has tactics and he's slinging arrows at us metaphorically. Uh, So we understand this to be an image of how he attacks us acutely um, in general, but then also with arrows that come our way. So the devil is on the offensive against us. It helps us, before we dig into what the breastplate of righteousness accomplishes, we need to dig into what his tactics are. Because they're manifold. The devil has been around for thousands of years. He is supremely wise. He has been trying things for that whole time. And he has no doubt narrowed down to specific things that really get us. Um, He knows our weaknesses. He knows where to attack. He has certain things that he goes to over and over again. You'd think that you'd know by now what he's up to, but he still is able to get us. About uh, a week ago, my son convinced me to go and see the epic Godzilla vs. Kong. It's a a tremendous movie. I recommend you all see it. And I, I I would say that I give a spoiler, but I'll bet you this crowd has already seen it. So there's nothing I could say that you don't already know. You've seen Godzilla vs. Kong. But I'll still be conservative about it in case there's some, some uh, twists that you don't know about. 
But Godzilla vs. Kong. Now, I grew up watching Godzilla movies. I love the old Japanese version of it. Um, There's over 40 Godzilla movies in total. The, the, the new ones are obviously the, the most well done. But the early ones were something special. In the early 50s when they had the different claymation um, Godzillas. Now Godzilla never looked too, too great to me. I mean, he kind of short arms. He didn't stand very stable. I thought he could be knocked over pretty easy. I mean, the flying turtle, Rodan, would take shots at him. But Godzilla would typically win. How is it that Godzilla wins? You've got to ask yourself. It doesn't look like this thing should win. Especially that version from the 50s into the 60s. But this is the secret about Godzilla and the reason why he won so often. Uh, Godzilla's signature weapon is his atomic heat beam. It's known as atomic breath if you're not familiar with Godzilla. This is a nuclear energy that is generated, of course, inside of Godzilla's body. Godzilla uses electromagnetic force to concentrate it into a laser-like high-velocity projectile and unleashes it from his jaws in the form of a blue or a red radioactive beam. That is Godzilla's go-to tactic, and when he's losing, he pulls it out. I won't say anything about the the current movie, but let's just say he goes to his go-to tactic all the time. You know it's coming, but you can't do much about it. Even King Kong would have trouble if he unleashes his atomic breath. That's Godzilla. Doesn't seem like he should be able to do what he can do, but he does it. Now, that's fake. That's just a fun fantasy. The devil's not a fantasy. He has been accumulating knowledge and tactics for centuries. No one here is smarter than him. So we have to know what are his tactics so we can see what's needed by it for defense. Now, the beauty is God knows what we need for defense. That's what the armor is. He's, he's completely in tune with what the devil's going to throw at us. So we do well to listen to God when he tells us why we need this armor. There are two basic tactics that we see over and over from the devil that we should be aware of as we consider the breastplate of righteousness and what it accomplishes. The first tactic of the devil is that he seeks to make you and I doubt God's word. That's his famous, most go-to tactic. It puts some doubt in your mind about what God has said. The second tactic that he loves to use is he loves to accuse you. He loves to make you feel like the gospel could not apply to you. You're out of the realm of forgiveness. He loves these two tactics. You can't really trust the Bible and what it says, and obeying it's not going to get you anything. Or, hey, you're so sinful, you could never be saved. Your sins are too great. He loves those two tactics. The first tactic you are familiar with from the very beginning. Genesis 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and listen to what he does, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's not what God said. He's twisting the word of God to cause Eve to second guess and get, just get flustered about what the devil's saying. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, now she's, she's off balance. Um, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now she's, all, she's turned around. He's accomplished confusing her about what God's word actually said. He's causing her to doubt God's word. Now she's a little bit off balance for sure, or a lot off balance at this point. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See what he does. He makes you second-guess the word of God. 
he gets you off balance, and then he drills it home. That's exactly what his tactic is that he uses here. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's actually got it out for you. Not only do you have, you can't trust his word, if you follow his word, it, life will not be fun. It will not be fruitful. It will not be fulfilling. Don't listen to God. He's just here to kill your joy. That is the devil's main tactic, by the way. And many succumb to it. Many, many people grow up in the church succumb to it. They think, you know, I, raised, I was raised a certain way. The, the scripture lays out a certain uh, way in which God calls us to live. Now, if you're listening fully, you realize that the way we're called to live is for our joy. It's, it's actually great joy that we obey the Lord, even if it means restraining ourselves in certain areas. But for the young person growing up, and it might think to themselves, they just don't know what fun is. The world's doing this. I'm going to go do this. And they listen to the lie of the devil who's saying, you know, maybe God didn't really say it. Because that's all you're doing when you talk like that. You're just listening to the devil say to you, maybe God's word isn't true. He's just trying to take joy from you. It's a very common tactic. All of us have had experience with this in our lives, I'm sure. He tempts us to disbelieve in the revelation of God. And really, when we doubt God's instructions, that's where we begin to make all sorts of wrong choices. God promises blessing for obedience, and then the devil says, no, you won't be blessed if you follow God's way. It's way more fun to do it this way, or more profitable to do it this way. Obey your parents. You will live long in the land, the Lord Lord says. The devil says, really? What do your parents know? They're old-fashioned. They're not in touch with the way things are now. The Lord says, don't bear false witness. Now, of course, the benefit is this builds up real relationships, and we manifest the truth of God, and we learn how to live life because we're telling the truth, and we're living in the truth. Don't lie, the, the Lord says. There's great benefit. But the devil says, come on now, a little fib. A little fib on your tax return, that's thousands of dollars and nobody's going to know. The scripture lays out God's plan for sexual purity, and it's not at all to rob us of joy. It's to build up that aspect of our life for exactly what he has for it, which is, is fulfilling, and it, it actually brings people together. It's an incredible gift of God. Uh, but the devil says, seriously, you're going to wait for that? That's not what, look at how many people, they're living great lives out there doing this a different way. Don't follow that old-fashioned advice. God isn't real. The devil says, do whatever. Follow your feelings, your desires. This is clearly a key, if not the main tactic of the devil. And the breastplate of righteousness will guard you against this particular scheme of the devil. Now, his other related theme, as we build towards understanding the purpose of the breastplate of righteousness, the other related theme is that the devil likes to attack you personally and us collectively as Christians. But personally, you can understand what this means. The devil loves to accuse you of being unworthy, of being unsavable, being beyond God's grace, being irredeemable. Um, this is what prompts John the Revelator to say in, John, in Revelation 12 that Satan is an accuser of the brothers. He loves to say he's not worthy, he's sinned. She sinned, God, he can't be forgiven. You can't love him because look what he's done. He's de- and he loves to accuse the brethren. He loves to throw out accusations about your sins. He'll bring them back up to your mind. So you, so you focus on your sins and not how they've been forgiven and taken care of by Christ. It takes your eyes off of that finished work of Christ and puts them on to your ongoing work, which isn't looking too good most days. And so the devil loves, loves to accuse the brethren. John wrote earlier than Revelation in his gospel, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He'll tell you those lies, that you're not loved, even though you know you're loved in Christ. But he'll tell you you're not loved. Or that sin you committed, it's beyond God's grace. And there's no sin beyond God's grace. His word declares it. You know it in Christ, but he wants your mind off of him and on to your works, on to your failings. The devil loves this approach and to accuse the brothers. He is so bold that centuries ago he went before God so that he could tempt and and taunt and torture Job. And listen to what he says to God, who knows the truth about Job. But Satan, just to show you his tactic, he says in Job 1, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? He's even trying to twist God. Have you not put a hedge around him? I mean, the only reason why Job isn't sinning against you, God, is because you're protecting him. Him and his house and all that he has, every side, you protect him. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. See, the devil loves to attack and to accuse and lie about you to God. He loves to lie about your forgiveness. He loves to be, he is effective in heaping believers with guilt and shame. He loves to whisper in your ear, you are not worthy of God's love. You're too much of a sinner. You've sinned too much. You're beyond grace. You're irredeemable. He accuses you of your sins and makes you think that God's grace cannot reach you. The breastplate of righteousness is essential to fend off the devil's attacks and both of those being his main ones. Whether it's the devil's lies about God's word or his lies about your being um, unsavable, the breastplate of righteousness is the base level defense you must have, not might have or might pick up as you must have the breastplate of righteousness for this. What is meant then by putting on the breastplate of righteousness as we come to our passage? Well, I mentioned earlier, and I'll say it again because it's so important. There are two facets to the breastplate of righteousness that we must grasp and understand. The first has been laid out for us as Ephesians has been building up. The first facet of the breastplate of righteousness is all of God's doing on our behalf in the person of Christ, in his righteousness credited to us. We call this our positional righteousness. The position of righteousness we have legally before God because of Jesus and our being in union with him. That's number one. That's the first facet of the breastplate of righteousness. But there's another facet that works from that one. They're not two separate that you choose one or the other. One rolls into the other one. And that is the issue of practical righteousness. Practical or practiced actual righteousness lived out. That's the second facet of the breastplate of righteousness. Positional and practical righteousness. These two things together define for us what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, let's begin with considering positional righteousness. Again, I mentioned to you, this is something that has been coming up in Ephesians. It's the, the basis for the confidence that Paul gives to believers. It's a theme we've seen. But just to repeat, listen to a little bit of Ephesians 1, the first chapter, and you'll see what this positional righteousness means. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So our position is in Christ. That's positional righteousness. Even as he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So our holiness and our blamelessness, our righteousness, is wrapped up in the person of Christ who we are in because of God's work of salvation, of redemption towards us. How do you know 
that you have that redemption? It's very simple. Do you rest in Christ's finished work for eternal life, or do you rest in your good works? If you rest in Christ, that's because he's placed you in Christ. You wouldn't even believe that if he had not done that work. If you believe in your own works, may God right now shake you out of that, because that's a terrible place to be. You should be shaken by the, the heinousness of our works and run to Christ. That's what it is to be in Christ. In Ephesians continues, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. You see how your position is in Christ, and it's solid there. So the breastplate of righteousness begins with the position you have. So it's like a signpost to the devil that you're wearing this breastplate, and it says Christ's righteousness. And the devil says, oh, that's tough for him, because you have the righteousness of Christ. That's going to offend. It doesn't mean he won't attack you, but he knows that that's impenetrable. It says in Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to grasp positional righteousness when you think of the breastplate of righteousness fending off the devil in all his tactics and his accusation. Your position, beloved brothers and sisters, is in Christ. And it doesn't really matter what you feel about that, it's true. You may feel that your sins are too much for God to forgive, but your feelings cannot be trusted. God's word can be trusted. And you may feel that about your sins, but do you think Christ's death can pay for those sins? Because if you understand that correctly, clearly God's done that work, and you can be confident that a devil's lies are just that. They're lies. And you are in Christ positionally, and God looks at you not for the sins you've committed, but for the righteousness that Christ has credited to you. That's positional righteousness. And that's the first facet of the breastplate of righteousness that we wear. You know, this translates into practical righteous living very quickly. But I love the way Martin Luther would go back to this doctrine over and over in his life. He saw it as the the linchpin to his whole Christian life. To experience any victory in actual righteousness, practical righteousness, you have to be rooted in the positional So like I make no apology for driving that point home every chance I get, he didn't either. And he would describe his own interactions with the devil. He often thought that the devil was verbally accusing him. He would say that at times. And he said to other believers, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares you to deserve death and hell, tell him this. Yeah, that's true. I deserve death and hell. What of it? And there's more things that you, don't even, you haven't even mentioned. But I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I will be also. That's positional righteousness. So when Paul writes throughout his epistles, it should not surprise us that this is not a side doctrine. This is the core, the marrow, if you will, of our union with Christ and what it means in the breastplate of righteousness is that vital defense that you have to have at base level 
to deal with anything the devil throws at you, especially his most famous schemes. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, positional righteousness. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How is it fulfilled in us? It's fulfilled through Christ. When he writes to the Philippians, he said, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. To be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience or from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. By Faith is just another word for resting in, trusting in, believing in, having faith in Christ and his work on our behalf. In 1 Corinthians 1, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You know, this is not just a, a New Testament doctrine. The God of grace prevails through all 66 books in all of the history of redemption. In fact, the evangelist Isaiah said in chapter 61, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's always God's work to give us this piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. But here's the beautiful flow that comes from the position of righteousness. When you know this, when you're secure in this, you can start to obey God because he's given you the ability to do it. And here's the beauty, I'll call it the beauty of it, the reality of it. When you fail in practical righteousness, you are not lost. You go back to positional righteousness. You go back to the gospel. And The more that happens, an amazing thing starts to happen. God starts to sanctify us as we go return to the means of God's grace again in the gospel over and over again. We find ourselves better strengthened for victory as we move forward. There will still be failures this side of glory, brothers and sisters. You may be in the midst of a failure right now thinking that God can't forgive me again. No, he can. He has. Go back to positional righteousness. Focus on this, and I promise you that the effect of that will be will to be, give you obedience. When you start to appreciate what God has done for you by grace through Christ, when you come up against those decisions that you have to make to sin or not to sin, if you're rooted in that positional righteousness, your opportunity for victory is real. And it will, you'll, see it happen in, you'll see it happen in your life. When you do this, like I did for a good long portion of my early Christian life, for many years, I had thought, God, you've saved me a sinner. Thank you for this. Now, I need to prove that that salvation you gave me is worth it. I, I want to I show I was worth what you saved me from. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to obey you. I'm going to show other people. Uh, by my example, I'm going to show how I've been changed and, and I've done this and, I, and I'm really buckling down. Because look what you've done for me. I've got to do this for you. And you know what that always uh, results in? Utter failure every time. No, because the same salvation that saved you at the beginning, 
The same salvation you thank God for is the same, that power of that salvation is the same thing that will give you any victory you'll ever experience over sin. And your victory over sin is not to show it was worthy. It's to show that God can take a sinner and change their life and recognize that. No credit to me. It's all credit to him. It's a, a magnificent change that will happen in your Christian life. Because you're a genuinely a believer, even if you mess up understanding this. But messing up understanding the relationship between the positional and the practical leads to tons of defeats. It's just very difficult to see any long-standing victory in your life if you're not rooted in the righteousness of Christ. So, the breastplate of righteousness, you see how they go together. When you properly understand the basis of it, then the practical righteousness starts to happen. So, when you read in the Word of God, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good, and you read the commandment that if you obey your parents, your days will go along, your first response isn't like, oh, that's killjoy, I don't want to listen to them, they're old-fashioned, they don't know. It's more like God's given me this promise, and there's wisdom here. He saved me. There's wisdom. He knows what he's speaking of. And maybe it means foregoing some things or changing some things, submitting to some things. Think of something else. The Lord gives us a model for how we conduct ourselves, how we relate with each other, to be honest with one another, to tell the truth, Um, rather than, you know, tell lies about ourselves so that you are impressed more. If I tell you I got a job I don't really have or an education that I don't really have, I think you'll like me better and you'll, you'll respect me more. And of course, it builds up a completely fake relationship and it's terrible. At the very moment, it may feel good because you think I'm a big man, but then as soon as I think about how, what a lie that was, and we live so much of our life putting up fronts, trying to look, when we don't live like that and we maybe on the front end don't impress as much, but now we have true relationships built up. That's the joy that God has set before us in real human relationships by following what he says to do. Uh, in following it is great joy. And in God's spirit, you don't have to worry about other people's impression of you because whose impression do you need other than the living God putting you in union with his son? That's way better than any job or education you could have ever had. And you stand in Christ. No matter what it is you do on this earth, you are in Christ. And so that gives you a boldness to be yourself to be true, to be honest. Another one, the word of God lays out for us how to look at marriage and how to prepare for marriage. And there's so many things we're confronted with before we commit to marriage, temptations that occur. We all know about them. The world's going to say, that's old-fashioned. You've got to test all this out before you actually commit to it. Go opposed to what the word of God says. And the devil will tell you, that's, a, that's the plan you should follow. But in Christ, you recognize the wisdom of God now. You know this is true what he says. And so you submit to that and you ask God to help you with that. Not to earn your salvation back or prove you're worthy, but because God is wise and loving and he's already shown that love to you. And your whole motivation for doing this is to bring glory to the God who saved you. And brothers and sisters, if you fail in this, he will not leave you. Go back to your position in Christ. I promise that that approach is where you'll actually find victory over those besetting sins. It's when you come from the position of righteousness in Christ to seek the practice of righteousness in your actual life. One of my favorite passages in the Bible about this is in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to what Paul wrote there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. So if you're positionally in Christ, you're a new creation. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So now we have the ministry to share. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, what I'm speaking to you. Therefore, we are ambassadors, representatives for Christ, messengers for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's what putting on the breastplate of righteousness looks like. Having the righteousness of Christ by faith will produce a pursuit of righteousness. And if you want to punch the devil in the face, the best way to do it is to have the breastplate of righteousness on. Because when he sees your powerless self say no to a sin, he knows it wasn't because of you. And that's just got to frustrate him. Slinging his arrows at you, and yet God is upholding you. And when an arrow seems to get through and you get jabbed and you go down and he cheers, you pull it out and stand back up into the, in the position of Christ that you have. That's the way we fend off the devil when he comes at us. And if you do get pricked by an arrow, don't stay down. Don't let him think something isn't true because you're not dead. You're in Christ. You stand back up because you're in Christ. And the breastplate of righteousness declares that for all to see and maybe most importantly for the devil to see. I love Ephesians 2.10 in light of what we've just been saying. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Positional righteousness. It works outwardly so that righteous patterns develop in our lives. Nicholas Zinzendorf wrote a hymn that we sing from time to time, and I will close with these words to meditate upon. He said, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice, now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Having Christ's righteousness motivates the pursuit of obedience to God in our lives, which is a powerful stance against the devil. Let's pray together. Lord, we are moved by the promises of your word, the power of your word, your spirit who attends your word. I pray that your people would be emboldened today, encouraged for anyone who's feeling defeated or that they've got arrows from the devil sticking in them. Pray that you'd pull them out and point them to their position in Christ once again. Lord, we read in the Psalms that you have equipped us for strength for the battle. You have made those who rise against us sink under our feet. And we know this is because of who we are in Christ. And I pray that we would bask in that identity that we have. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us together respond to God's word by turning to 528 and also preparing for communion.